Are we ready? All right, then let's stand to our feet. We're in a series called Open Heaven. Turn to a neighbor and say, Open Heaven. We're going through the book of 1 Corinthians and we're dialoguing on this church that they're the church. They are followers of Jesus, but they are a hot mess. They are in a cultural context that is a mess. They are in a church context that is a mess. And yet Paul calls them, prompted by the spirit of God, saints. If you missed last week, we kicked off the series. It's identity before instruction. Before he goes in to correct a bunch of things that need to be corrected, Paul emphasizes who they are before what they should do. We talked about how it is vitally important that you have the starting point of identity right before everything else can properly fall into place. If you missed it, I mean, if you're online, press pause right now, go back to last week, it's foundational. If you're in the room, you can't really do that, that'd be awkward, you know, I want you listening, but when you go home, look it up, our YouTube or podcast, search Greenhouse Church South Florida and you'll find it there. This week, I wanna build on the second installment of the series, if the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, opens heaven, this is the first thing we're introduced to that has a possibility to block that open heaven reality. Somebody say, oh no. It's important, it's vitally important. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter one. 1 Corinthians chapter one, we're gonna pick up in verse 10. And if you don't have a Bible, we got Sky Bible on the screen for your viewing enjoyment. There was some drama in college football this week, but I'm gonna talk about NFL football. Dolphins fans, where are we at? Some of you naysayers, you're like, why did you pray? Well. Cause so miracles can happen. That's why, okay? Tua, how we feeling about 466 yards on the comeback? That's good. You know, the defense was a little, you know, whole Swiss cheesy, but they showed up when it counted. And now we have the evil empire. We already know all of heaven is against the evil empire. So it's gonna be, it's gonna be good. You're like, who is that? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, it's the Patriots. Uh, verse 10, if you're ready, say, let's do this. All right. Paul continues, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, this is sort of a generic term meaning family, I appeal to you, brothers, sisters, family, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you, what does it say? Woo. Wow. All of you? Man. That all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. That you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, I kinda like that, you know Chloe, her people? Yeah, they told me. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each one of you says, well, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now, I know none of us can relate to this in our cultural context, but just pretend, okay? He says, is Christ, the Messiah, divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Actually, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know if I baptized anybody else. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> Love that. You ever, you ever talk stream of consciousness? <laughs> So I only baptized them. Well, maybe, that, I, I, actually, I don't know, but I, it wasn't a lot of people. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel the good news of the finished work of Jesus and the active outworking of that in our real lives. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. This morning, I wanna talk about division. Let's pray. God, 
please help. Amen. Turn your neighbor, give him a high five. Say, I agree with that prayer. Lord, help. Lord, help. It's gonna be one of those sermons. All right, anybody like sports? You probably guessed I do. Anybody grow up playing sports, team sports, anybody? All right, growing up playing team sports, I did, many of you did, some of you online in Guyana maybe did. There is one surefire recipe where you know defeat for the other team is imminent. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. You're playing a game, and I remember it most vividly in high school football. I played cornerback. By the way, Deion Sanders was my inspiration to want to play quarterback. Neon, Deion, and now he's winning. We'll see when he plays uh, you know, more teams. And, and I remember just watching all of this, and, and um, I'm playing football, and you could see it on the sideline. If you could get in the other team's head, if you could kind of get them frustrated, if you could get in their zone, if you saw them on the other sideline yelling at one another, pushing one another, fighting one another, you guys know what I'm saying. If you noticed that on the other sideline there was fighting amongst their ranks, you knew it was only a matter of time, but they were dead meat. Why? Because if the enemy becomes someone in here, there's no way you're gonna defeat the enemy out there. That'll preach. This is expressly the situation that Paul finds himself writing to this church in Corinth. Now, if we mentioned last week that this church was desperately in need of correction, this church was desperately in need of being redirected in many off ways that they were not following the King Jesus, but Paul says, man, I've gotta begin with identity. I have to affirm identity, start from the place of identity. This is the very next thing that he does. If it's identity before instruction, you remember from last week? If the important principle from last week is identity before instruction, this is the very first instruction. Now this is, this is somewhat striking, stunning. This instruction cannot wait. Now, by the way, you'll see as we get into the story in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to have to, is going to, have to address things like mm, prostitution, sexual immorality, drunkenness at communion, and people sleeping with their step-parents. Yeah, I didn't just make that up. This, these are all of the, like, some pressing issues. How many of you think if people were getting drunk at communion in greenhouses, like, that's probably pretty important. But Paul looks at all of these issues, and he says, man, I know which one is the most important. I know which one I have to talk about first. And he says, it's, it's division. It's division. You're like, what in the world? What, 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 remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, a kingdom divided against itself, what? Cannot stand will not survive, will not succeed. And it got me wondering, I wonder if in a cultural context where division is the norm, where division is often even celebrated and venerated, I wonder if we've made division a smaller deal than it actually is. Three stopping points, there it is. Three stopping points along the way as we dig into this idea biblically of division. And the first one is this, division is contagious. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't catch it. 
Don't catch it. Division is contagious. Now, it is important that we understand a bit of the cultural context of these followers of Jesus in Corinth to be able to appropriately apply principles to our modern context. Here's the context of the Corinthian culture when it comes to division. Bruce Winter, in his book, After Paul Left Corinth, digs into the history, specifically the Greco-Roman practice in that culture in the ancient world of discipleship. This is what he says. The sophists were the professional orators who were able to command large audiences. They charged high fees for educating youth, and often they garnered a great deal of power within the city. Now, there was extreme competition among the orators for honor and power. The better the orator, the higher the fee they could charge, and the more disciples he would attract. This is the mold the church at Corinth was following or following into. What we see in this church at Corinth is that they were walking along in the same precedent, in the same context of the culture in which they were placed. The culture was all about orators who would get this this clout and then they would use it for financial gain. And what we see here in the church is the same cultural context in the culture of Corinth is the same reality of the Corinthian church. Now, I know that would never happen here in the United States of America. I'm sure that we would, if, if division is contagious, we're so united, it's in our very name that it would never trickle over into the church, right? I mean, I, I, thankfully, we don't have any sort of system set up whereby you could financially gain more money if you had a larger, uh, let's say, influence, or let's just call them theoretically followers, and, and if you had sort of a clout and, and your niche could make you rich. Like, it, we don't have any realities like that in our culture to worry about, right? See, it's not just ancient Corinthians that need to be warned. I would argue it is just as apropos for modern Americans and North Americans and Guyanese as well. See, the problem is that these Corinthian followers of Jesus, let's let's get it clear, they are saints. That's what Paul said. They're followers of Jesus, but the problem is they had fallen into living and structuring themselves in predictable ways like the culture around them rather than like the kingdom above them. They were living just like the culture. If last week is that the gospel, the good news of the finished work of Jesus has the power to open heaven, this week is all about how the realities of an open heaven can be shut when division comes. See, the problem is ego. The problem is ego. In fact, it's, it's interestingly here in the original language in the passage, ego, right, is that emphatic I. It's the overemphasized I. It's, it's pride. It's self-centeredness. It's ego. It's actually in the passage, the Greek word is, it's ego is a Greek word that we inherited in our cultural context. The problem is and has always been ego. Phil Jackson, the famous Chicago Bulls coach and now Miami Heat uh, builder of dynasty, uh, he, he's been winning for a long time. How many Chicago Bulls fans, you remember this era, basketball fans? This was like the golden years. Of this. You got, uh, I, I don't know if you know, we got you know, Michael Jordan here, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, a few small egos to handle on this team, right? 
And as Phil Jackson, I came across an article and they were asking him, man, he won, they won something like, I think it was six NBA championships during this reign, 89 to 98, six NBA championships. And they were asking Phil Jackson, man, what was your secret? Like, what kind of strategies did you employ? What sort of things did you do? What, what, what were the, and he said, you know, this was his quote. The best coaches are the ones who learn to navigate, can you guess, the egos. How did you do it, Phil? He said, not by strategy or by power, but by ego maintenance, says Phil Jackson. He says, I, the best coaches, the ones who really pull it out of players, the ones who really win the championships are the ones who learn to navigate the egos. I mean, if we could ever learn to navigate ego, can you imagine what could happen? Could win the championships. Amazing things could take place. But the ego challenge of our cultural reality is very real. We're a culture obsessed with ego. We're a culture obsessed with platform, with status, with personalities. We're a culture full of egos. And when we elevate individual egos, it happens often and most often at the expense of another and in comes division and division is contagious. It was contagious for the followers of Jesus in the Corinthian church because of the division in the culture of Corinth. And I would argue it is contagious for followers of Jesus in the American church due to the division in our American cultural context. Are you guys tracking with me? Division is contagious. Not only is it contagious though, but also number two, if you're taking notes, jot this one down. Division is dangerous and defeating. Growing up, and even now, I, I love fishing. Any, any fishermen, fisherwomen out there, I just love, love to fish. I enjoy it, all seven of us, awesome. All right, I love doing it, and, uh, and I still do it. We live on our canal now, and I'll go out, and one of the things I do to recharge is I wanna play sports, I wanna go out fishing. And I grew up here in South Florida, and I remember there was a bridge over by a park in Plantation, and there was just fish there all the time. And so I would take my fishing pole out there and I remember one day in particular, I was probably 10, maybe 11 years old and I went out there, I'm like, all right, this is the day. And I brought my whole tackle box. I suffered riding my bike with this big old tackle box. I'm like, I'm gonna try everything in there. Couldn't get the fish to bite. Tried another lure, couldn't get the fish to bite. Tried worms, couldn't get the fish to bite. Tried plastic, Try everything I tried. And I'm looking at the fish. You ever been in this scenario? You're watching the fish in front of you and you can't get them to bite. You're like, this is crazy. By the way, it's why it's called fishing, not catching. But I'm like, ah, but I remembered when we went to the beach earlier that summer, we had bought this thing called a cast net. Ooh, and I had an idea. What if I gave up on the fishing pole altogether? There's no rules. Just got to get the fish. And what if I just took the cast net out to the canal? I'd look like a crazy person, but I would catch the fish. And I, I, I kid you not, I biked home. Mom, you remember? I biked home. Is this a true story? I biked home, got the cast net, wrapped it around, put it in a backpack, biked over, looked at the fish and said, today's your day. And I took this cast net and you see a little picture. That's how it works. I'm not gonna throw it, it's lead weights. I don't want y'all suing me. And, and I chucked this thing out and it spread open like that and it lands and I pulled in so many fish. 
all of the fish. And I'm, and I'm here and I brought a little bucket because I had, I had a little bit of faith, but not enough faith. And I had all these fish to deal with and it was an absolute mess. And there was all this stuff going on. And I remember I was like, yes, the cast net was the solution. And it was amazing. And you're like, John, why do you tell that story? Because it was a good day. It's a very good day. Now I'll tell you in just a moment, I, I wanna look at this verse 10. And there's a very important key hidden in the text. Let's jump back into verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, family, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be, everybody say united, united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, when we see this word united, what do we think it means? United. Together, right? We read it in our English vernacular, and, and there's not really much additional nuance to be found, but uh, this was not written in English. Some of you might know this was written in Greek in the original language. And this word united comes from the Greek word katardizo. Everybody say it with me. Katardizo. Y'all are so sophisticated, speaking Greek and everything. Go home and tell your friends. Katardizo. Now, what this word, this word is fascinating, and in study, I'm like, man, I, I do sermon prep with Pastor Mike and we're going back and forth. What'd you find in the text? And we kind of geek out on it. And, and this word is only used two or three times in the entire New Testament. And the only times we see it used, two of those three times, the only times we see it used are when we get uh, Andrew and the brothers mending their nets in Matthew and Mark. Katardizo, united, mending the nets. You're like, Pastor John, what's the point? Here's why division and unity matter so much. When we are divided, when we are not in unity, something tragic happens and the results counteract everything God intended. The part I did not tell you about my cast net story and why I did not continue to fish with cast nets and use a pole to this day is because in a canal, it is not a sandy, clean bottom. There are rocks, there are logs, there are, there are things in the bottom. And I casted out this net and the first time it was kind of fine, the second time it got a little stuck and the third time. And by the end of my time with this cast net, I pulled it up only to find a massive, gaping hole. The nature of fishing, and remember in the ancient world, it would have been largely with these nets. The nature of fishing with these nets is that an occupational hazard of fishing is that when you do it, you will inevitably end up with holes in your net. And it's no coincidence that Jesus, the word, the, the one who was the most intense, some of you are still like, I can't believe he cut the net. It's okay. It's okay. Zach, I'll just pay you back. Later. No, I'll just play. I'll just, I bought it for this purpose, okay? When we are divided, here's what it means. Katardizo. I want you united. Here's the point. When we are divided, our nets are broken. We have holes which is problematic if your call is according to your rabbi Jesus to be fishers of men. How would fishermen do with holy nets? You want holy lives, but you don't want holy nets, why? 
Because if you're a fisher of men, if you're a fisher of people, if God has called you out to cast your bread, the good news of Jesus on the waters, and you get some fish in the net, but you've got division, no mending of the nets and there are holes, guess what? The fish slip through. And as heirs, the promises of God slip through. And the peace and the joy and the purpose that God intended for your life because of the holes in your net, because of the division, it all slips through. And maybe you're here this morning watching online in Guyana and you're like, Pastor John, I don't get it. Like uh, uh, the life and life abundantly, the amazing things we talk about. Like I even believe it, but it just feels like I'm not experiencing it. Here's a question for you. Just something to consider. Maybe it is not a lack of provision from the God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ask, think, or even imagine. Maybe the lack of flourishing in your life is not a result of lack of provision, but lack of retention because there are holes in your net. It's a beautiful, hope-stirring reminder, but a sobering reality. You can probably guess in the ancient world that fishermen would have spent more time than anything else doing what? Mending their nets. Just as much time as they had to spend on the water in the ancient world, they had to spend off the water or at least not casting their nets because inevitably the occupational hazard of being fishermen means they had to deal with the holes in their net. The call to unity in the ancient world was a call to catardizo, mending the nets, which means we need not be surprised when our ministry and much of what we feel we're putting relational energy into is mending relational nets. We need not be surprised when all of a sudden, how how did that miscommunication happen? How did that situation spiral so quickly? Well, the enemy of our souls know to mess with the nets. If we're called to be fishers of men, which is our call from Jesus, this means our call is at least in large fashion to the work of mending the nets between us. It's not a question of if, but simply when. Because if you're out there doing the work, if you're out there following Rabbi Jesus, if you're out there fulfilling the call, there will be snags and there will be holes that will come about in your net. Katar Dizo, be united. If there's no net mending, The net has holes. Unity is broken. Jesus is grieved. And open heaven is blocked. I'm telling you, I know it's difficult, it's challenging. Have you ever met Christians? They're crazy. (sighs) On a less humorous note, people hurt us, you, me, disappointment let down, but I need you to feel the weight and the gravity with which Paul brings this encouragement before any of the other maladies of which there are many with deep and drastic severity. He says, of first importance is this, mending the nets, unity. If we want harvest, to see God move in amazing ways in our world, we need unity. 
If we want to walk in the promises of God, all of the good things that God desires for us, we need unity. If we want peace and joy in our lives, joy that remains, that stays, we need to tend to and mend the holes in our nets. We we need unity. See, division is contagious. It will happen. Challenges will come. Relational friction will take place. There will be drama in your microchurch. I am not a prophet. I'm just a human. I've been around long enough. There will be drama in your family of origin. There will be issues with your roommates and the science experiment that they just don't deal with in the dishes. But our call as followers of Jesus is katardizo, mending of the nets. See, division is contagious. Number two, division is dangerous and defeating, which leads us to point number three. Unity reflects the gospel and helps open heaven. Turn to a neighbor and say, it's true. It's true. Unity reflects the gospel and helps open heaven. His call is not one of doom and gloom. His call is one of hope because unity reflects the gospel and helps open heaven. Let's look again at verse 10. I appeal to you. I beseech you, this is passionate language at the front end of his letter after encouraging this church, after reminding them, you're saints, you're beloved by God. He's given you all of this grace. You know, he says, listen, all of these amazing things are true. So I beg you by the name of the Lord Jesus, all of you agree, have no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. What this is not saying is to not have any diversity of thought. One of the things I love about our church family is that we have a diversity of perspectives, a diversity of cultures, a diversity of generations. This is not saying when it says have the same mind. All of you just need to think the same. That is impossible. By the way, that's not how God designed you and he did not design you wrong. What it's saying is at the heart level, you're for one another. At the heart level, you're, a, you're valuing one another. You're seeking to understand one another. When someone has a different perspective, you don't immediately demonize and dismiss it. You're like, well, tell me more about that. I wanna learn. You're my brother. You're my sister. If the, I can see you're passionate about this and if it matters to you, I wanna understand it more. It's at the deepest level, you might have differences of thought and opinion, but you're united in the heart because why? You got the same dad. The same one who said, amen, that's good. That's good. By the way, this is not just a message isolated to these followers of Jesus in Corinth. This is really a message throughout the trajectory of scripture. Romans 12 verse 18 says it like this. It says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with who? Y'all didn't say that too emphatically. Live at peace with? Now I love this because it's honest. There are sometimes it is truly out of your hands. John, I have done everything possible to be a peacemaker. And, and okay, cool. If it's possible, as much as depends on you. But if we're being honest, there are often many more depends on us things we could do. We just don't want to. Right? If it's possible, as much as depends on you. Can you, should, do you have to give that one extra apology? Wrong question. If you thought about Jesus and all that he's done, what do you think you could do? If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live at peace with all people. In Matthew 5, you remember Jesus on his famous Sermon on the Mount, he said this, he said, blessed are the what? Peacekeepers. That's not what it says? Well, wait a second. So I, no, I, I just thought like, you know, just keep it copacetic. Just 
let everything, like, don't, don't rock the boat. Like, but like, there's a mess over there. I, I don't wanna get into the mess. Jesus did not say, blessed are the peacekeepers for they keep everything at bay. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. How do you make something? You actually have to proactively do something about it, right? Our call is proactive towards unity and to squash division. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, for they will be called children of God. Friends, it's who you are. If you follow Jesus, Guyana, online, in the room, if you follow Jesus, you are called by your teacher, rabbi, and Lord Jesus, the Messiah, to be a peacemaker. Now, there are, as I mentioned, all sorts of important things to address. There are issues, but in a divided culture, Paul decides this is of first important. And it is just as pertinent to us today, if not more. We're coming up in our cultural moment on division season. I'm sorry, that's not what we call it. We have a better euphemism. We call it election season. Division season. And you all realize, we know this, right? There are billions upon billions of dollars invested in our world to do one thing, divide us. Huge, big money, huge amounts of money. Why? Because in order to mobilize, you have to polarize. We've learned tragically in our cultural context that this works. If you want to mobilize people towards some political end or whatever end, you have to polarize them and convince them that the other person is not just another person with a different opinion, but they're probably rational. They're, they're evil. They are trying to destroy the world. Billions of dollars. Actively and intentionally manipulating to do one thing, at least at the onset, to divide. Here's my prayer, disciples. I could, I could say this now. You could be like, ah, oh, that's amazing, amen. And then a couple months from now, you're gonna give me the death stare. I know it. I know it. So I'm gonna say it now. Disciples of Jesus, don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. When you feel all those big feelings rising up and you start thinking to yourself, yeah, all of them are, ooh, them? Who's them? Your brother, sister in Christ that you serve on the serve team with, that you know votes differently than they would, but they're delightful. Don't fall for it. Why? Because you've been called to hire. You've been called to hire. Back then, here was their struggle. Well, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. Well, I'll follow Cephas. I don't even use his Peter name because I'm that spiritual. Cephas. I follow Christ. We don't say that now. Here's what we say. I follow the donkey. I follow the elephant. I follow whatever the independents use. I don't even know. I follow that. I follow. And we get into these paradigms and and Paul is reminding them, no, you don't. You follow the king. You follow the king. Like, I, I don't care what political figure you have affinity to. And let me be abundantly clear. Amen to civic engagement. Vote. Use the scriptures as a paradigm. Vote your conscience. Yes and amen to all of that. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city, all right? Bible made it clear. But let's be clear on this. No politician is a savior. And they certainly did not die for your sins. I love what Paul says. He said, did, did Paul get crucified for you? He's like, guys, what are you doing here? Jesus is the old, Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the leader. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the hope. Man, if our culture could only what? Turn to Jesus. That's the solution. 
So vote your conscience and yes and amen, but don't get it twisted. Of first importance is this, Jesus Christ is Lord and he is the hope and he is the savior and he is the redeemer and we're called to him and his family first. If you have a modifier before Christian, you have the order wrong. I am a liberal Christian. I am a conservative Christian. No, you're not. <laughs> Switch it. Because we're his first, we follow his path, his heart as our most important marching orders. And here's what he says. Maintain unity. No divisions. The king and his kingdom come first. That's what he says, right? Because he doesn't care about our world? No, because he loves it more than any of us do, and he knows the only solution is the one that he's laid out for us. Here's the application this morning. In your real life, online, Guyana, right here in Western High School, I want you to ask yourself this question. This is a moment for reflection. Is there something in my life that's dividing me from other people, especially his people? Is there something in my life that's dividing me from other people, especially his people? Maybe it's a politic. Maybe it's an offense. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a liberty, something that's not a bad thing. It might even be a good thing, but it's being abused. Maybe it's a mistake that needs to be acknowledged. Maybe it's an apology that needs to be made. Think about it. Lord, by your spirit, give us a moment of clarity and self-reflection. Is there something in your life that's bringing division, dividing you from other people, especially God's people? Been praying all week long that God would Speak to our hearts. Now, if the answer is yes, which I bet it is for a lot of us, most of us, the call of disciples of Jesus is this, that we learn intentionally and proactively, that we learn progressively, that we learn to pursue unity, that we learn to pursue Unity. Hit me with that verse, please, in Ephesians. It says this, therefore, I, this is Paul again, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Listen to this. Always be humble and gentle. You're like, that would take a miracle. Exactly. Always be humble and gentle. God doesn't call you to do anything that he's not gonna equip you to do. Always be humble and gentle. God, I need your help. Exactly. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Make an allowance for each other's faults because of your what? Love. And this is what he says. And make every effort. Somebody say every effort. Every, make Every effort. Well, I, I, I tried, but did you make every effort? Sometimes the answer is yes. You've made every effort. Oftentimes the answer is uh, ish. Make every effort to keep yourselves united, binding yourselves together with peace. 
Now I get it. Some of you are having like a, a spiritual, like, oh, you're terrified. You're like, ah, Pastor John, even the thought of it terrifies. Like, I, that's not my thing. I'm just not good at that. Like, a con, how many of us, let's just be honest, we do not like conflict. How many of you are like, I hate, okay, you even hate raising your hand to have to admit that you don't like conflict. You're like, ah, this is the worst, right? Just to be clear, the overwhelming majority of humans do not like conflict, all right? So you're like, Pastor John, this just isn't my thing. I, I don't do this. Even the, the, uh, peacekeeping, maybe, peacemaking. Ah! Like maybe it's not your thing, but check this. It is his call. And just like in life, you never get good at things you don't practice. Pastor John, I'm just not good at conflict. Well, how often do you practice conflict? I don't, I avoid it. Well, then you'll never get good at it. How many of you want to have a great marriage, a great relationship someday? Guess what you're going to have to get good at? Conflict! Yeah! <laughs> Friends, do you realize God loves you? He's not a jerk. He's not trying to make your life difficult. He wants your nets to be without holes so that when the amazing things he has for your life flow in, they don't just flow out as quickly because there are holes in your net. He loves you, which means we've got to learn to pursue unity. We've got to learn to become menders of the nets. These fishermen, I'm assuming, were not experts the first mend they did. It probably looked horrible and didn't hold. But practice makes better. Followers of Jesus, listen to me, especially if conflict feels like a plague to you, which by the way it is, it's called sin. Learn to pursue unity. Real tangible here, very practical. Like, what does that even mean? Number one, learn to disagree without having to demonize. What our culture does is assume if you have a different of opinions, you're a horrible person then it's real easy to just say whatever you want and dismiss it entirely. Learn to disagree without having to demonize. How would I do this? Well, here's one way. Have real relationships with people in your real life that think and vote differently than you do. So when you start thinking about they, which by the way is always, the devil is the categorizer of the brethren. He puts people in boxes. As soon as you start finding yourself talking, thinking, well, they are, ooh, that's devil speak. Don't do it. Don't do it. Who's they? Well, man, I got it. Jim in microchurch, I, I know he thinks that way, but he's great. You know what? I just need to ask him. That's what I'm going to do. Learn to disagree without having to demonize. Number two, learn to resolve relational friction quickly. Our hearts cannot hold things in tension for very long without going dark. We just can't. This is the wisdom of James. It says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. That is not necessarily saying a literal day. Sometimes you need to literally sleep on it. Otherwise, heaven is not gonna be in that conversation. But the point is do it as quickly as you possibly can. Why? Because if you are genuinely offended, it matters to God and it probably matters to that person. Most of the time, they don't even know. Because you tell them, oh, I'm fine. No, you're not, you're lying. And, and then this, this mess seeps in and we didn't mean for it to. And bitterness seeps in. And division seeps in. And all of a sudden, these nets have holes. And Paul says, don't, don't do that. Do you know how much God loves you? Do you know how good there are, the good things he has for your life? Don't have holes in your net. Be united. 
Learn to resolve relational friction quickly. Here's my paradigm. I give it 24 hours with Jesus. I've told you guys this before. I don't have many new things. I just have some things that work. If after 24 hours, I'm still feeling a certain way about an interaction, and sometimes Jesus deals with me right there, I'm like, I'm good, it was me. Lord, I am that man, I repent. But if after 24 hours, it's still there, I go to the person directly, and I don't assume, I don't demonize them. I say, hey, listen, when this happened, it made me feel like that, and I'm sure that wasn't your intention. I just wanted to tell you, and almost every time it turns out great, and our relationship strengthens and deepens rather than divides. It's a way of the kingdom. Lastly, learn to monitor your input. Learn to monitor your inputs. What I mean by this in particular is your amount of God's word in your life. If God's word is in your life in abundant measure, you're getting God's heart and mind for the world and his people. Think about your amount of God's word in your life versus your preferred cable news channel. And if the ratio is off, do not be surprised when you end up thinking and acting more like the world than you do like the people of God. You, you can, it, it, it's the law of exposure. Like what you meditate on, you will magnify and what you magnify moves you. That's just how it works. You cannot change that. It is a reality of this planet. It is how humans are wired. You cannot change how your inputs impact you, but you can change your inputs. Come on. So change them. The moral of the story is God will bring harvest. He will. He, he, he's gonna, you remember some of these stories, they go out fishing and they're doing all their, their fish, they're professional fishermen. They're doing all their stuff and they're out and in their efforts, they, they go out fishing this one time and they catch nothing. And then Jesus is like, hey, let me teach you to fish. Put it on that side of the boat. And they're like, oh, they kind of mock him almost like, fine, rabbi, you're not even a pro. Like, yeah, we're gonna take your rookie advice. And what happens? The nets are so full, they can't even get it in the boat. But the nets don't. The nets don't break. I didn't exactly mean to drop that, but it worked for dramatic effect, so I'm going to go with it. <laughs> but the nets don't break. Why? Because it's the heart of King Jesus, our Father, like we sung about this morning, that his people would be one. You remember Jesus' final prayer, that high priestly prayer that Gabby mentioned, John 17? Lord, that they would be one. It's the heart of Jesus. It's his prayer. And I don't know about you, but if I can do anything to bring a smile to the face of Jesus, it's his grace, it's his goodness, it's his nearness. It's not by works, lest any man should boast. But man, if there could be something that could move his heart, I wanna do that something every single time. God will bring harvest, he'll bring increase, he'll bring blessings, he'll bring his presence. But if we don't have unity, church, I'm telling you, we will watch those things slip out of the net just as easily. Katardizo, mending of the nets. If we don't have unity in our home, in our business, in our church, friends, you have holes in your net. Don't let the good things that God intends for you slip right through. Learn to pursue unity. Learn to be a mender of the nets. It's our call. Some of you might be familiar with the Azusa Street Revival. This happened in California in the Los Angeles area. This was back in 1906. It kicked off a move of God and God's spirit that we still sit in the stream of today. God used a man named William Seymour, African-American man, the, the grand, grandson of former slaves. And, and this movement was wild. 
this was when a time where there was very deep and intentional segregation all throughout the United States of America. It was wicked and it was sin. And yet God began to move. And these meetings were marked by supernatural explosions of the miraculous. And they were marked by diversity, which was a sign and a wonder in the day. It was not happening like it was there on Azusa Street. And it was a mark of God's fingerprint because God's kingdom is every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And he taught us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. It was amazing. It was supernatural. It was diverse. Here's a quote. Among firsthand accounts were reports of the blind having their sight restored, diseases cured instantly, and immigrants who spoke German or Yiddish or Spanish all being spoken to in their native language by uneducated African-American members who did not speak that language, but somehow translated the languages into English by, quote, supernatural ability. It was wild. I mean, look it up when you get home. Do a little Wikipedia search on the Azusa Street Revival. It happened in Los Angeles, 1906. There's salvations, truckloads of people coming to Jesus. Miracles, signs and wonders, power of God. Now, there was some cultural opposition. Not everyone was a fan of diversity like many of us would be today. There was demonic opposition. In fact, there was whole groups of witches and warlocks and Satanists that came together and they said, we are gonna stop this thing. And they literally did like satanic ritual prayer meeting things outside of this Azusa Street revival. And nothing could stop the move of God. Nothing could stop what God was doing. It was amazing. It was powerful. It was incredible. And nothing could stop it until division. Until tragically, the same reality in the culture abroad became a malady in the church within because division is contagious. And racism crept in and classism crept in. Many of the leaders were black and brown leaders or they were from lower socioeconomic status. And, and I sat there stunned as I realized what witches and warlocks and Satanists could not stop, division did. Is it possible we've made division seem much less powerful than it is? Division opens hell. It creates an opening in our metaphorical nets in the fish. And in this case, revival slips right through the net. You say, Lord, we need awakening. Do you see it? I mean, in our modern day, Lord, we need, we need awakening. We need revival. We need your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we need you to move. Then we need unity. Lord, we wanna see miracles, salvations, the power of God on display in our world. Then we need unity. We want to see lives transformed. We want to see families reconciled, reunited, people made whole, don't we? Then we need unity. Psalm 133 says it like this. It says, behold, how good, how pleasant it is when God's people live together. And there it is, unity. It's like precious oil poured down the head, running down the beard, running down Aaron's beard, down the collar of his robe. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. In an agrarian society in the midst of a desert, rain is life. It's life. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Other versions say eternal life. Where there's unity, God commands his blessing. And I get it, man, it's, it's, it's challenging, it's difficult, it's hard. 
And what I'm not saying is all of a sudden you're gonna be best friends with all the people who have ever hurt you. Sometimes you need to be reconciled and have peace and forgiveness in your heart where you can say genuinely, I forgive them, I bless them, I pray God's best for them and you keep an appropriate distance and you have boundaries up. That might need to be the case, but you know in your heart when you can say, I am for them and I love them and I pray God's best for them, even though I might not have the same depth of relationship that I had before. Do you want to continue to experience God's blessing in your life and not have it slip through the nets? Then pursue unity. Do you want God's blessing, his shalom, shalom, his perfect peace and joy in your family? Then pursue unity. Do you want to experience eternal life and life abundant? It's right here in Psalm 133. Then pursue unity. You say, John, but in my, in my situation, I would take a miracle. In my scenario, in my, in my world, in my context, that would take an absolute miracle. John, I can't even imagine how that would ever work. This is why it all goes back to in the very ending of this section in verse 17, Paul says, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. In speaking of unity, he references a great divide that existed between humanity and God. The moral of the story for us in this room who follow Jesus is we were enemies of God every possible relational act that would be egregious that maybe we have experienced in our lives from people we did to God and he was perfect. We're flawed. He was perfect. He was the king and we pushed him off in rebellion and pride and yet the cross of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, the, the message of Jesus was so powerful that it bridged the divide between humanity and God and if he can bridge that divide and that friction and that relational gap, he can bridge any divide can do it the miracle's already done what what can what can wash away my sin what could what could do it nothing but the blood of Jesus he reconciled us to God he bridged the impossible gap and if he bridged that gap no gap is too great let's pray Jesus right now in this space in this moment would you would you speak to our hearts? Lord, I'm believing that by your spirit, you've brought specific situations and scenarios and people to mind. And Lord, I do not know every situation in this room online in Guyana, but I'm sure some of them are immensely difficult and painful. And Lord, this week I'm praying that we as your disciples called to learn to pursue unity, called to actively be taught by you to be fishers of men. Lord, that we would follow you on this journey. Lord, for some of us who are gonna have conversations with our microchurch leaders, how do I, what does it look like to pursue unity? For some of us who are gonna have conversations with our counselors, what, what does it look like to pursue unity? Lord, there's many follow-up conversations, but the call is clear. Lord, we don't wanna have holes in the net. Lord, here at Greenhouse, would you make us one? In our microchurches, would you make us one? In our families, would you make us one? I wanna give a moment for response. If you're here this morning and, and you need to be united with God through Jesus, right relationship restored, forgiveness with God, it's only available through what Jesus has done on the cross, his sacrifice, his grace, his goodness. If that's you, you just ask him. You just look to him and say, Jesus, I, 
I need you. I need to be made right with you. I can't do it in my own effort, in my own abilities. I've, I've created a gap. Ask him for forgiveness. Ask him to reconcile. He'll do it. He did it. Once and for all, his sacrifice on the cross. Maybe you're here and, and you know you're a follower of Jesus. You're in the room, you're online. You know God is calling you to pursue unity and restore relationships with others. And I would encourage you according to the scriptures to do this in view of God's mercy. When you start thinking to yourself, well, I don't know if they deserve, just think, well, what did I deserve? And how did God treat me? And then that's your, that's your frame of reference. That's your schema. My encouragement to you would be to move his heart by obeying his call. As much as depends on you, live at peace with all people. Make every effort to maintain unity in the bond of the spirit, the bond of peace. We've got a team of of some intercessors that spend time all week and even before the service praying. And, and a, a few of them had thoughts or impressions of things God is wanting to do. Someone that was hurt by a parent as a child, still not on speaking terms. Someone that needs to apologize for deep hurt towards an ex. Your hurt has separated that person from following Jesus. Maybe you know that, feel that. Someone with a stomach ulcer, the stomach ache is connected to bitterness towards someone. If any of those resonate with you, you're like, well, who told? No, nobody told. It, it might be God because he loves you and he wants to set you free and he doesn't want there to be holes in your net anymore so you can capture and retain the blessings and the goodness that he has for your life. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we love you. Lord, would you make us one? You've called us to pursue unity. Lord, would you, in the midst of a culture that, that feels more divided than ever and viscerally so, God, would you make us one? Different thoughts, different opinions, different cultures, different backgrounds, different political views who feel so deeply in love with you and full of gratitude that we fulfill your heart by being united in heart, in purpose. Lord, make us one that it would be a sign and a wonder to a watching world to say, what in the world is that? All those different people, different ages, different races, different demographics, and yet they, they love each other. Lord, only you can do it. One of the joys of my heart is that this church family is living that out to a large degree. Continue it, deepen it. Lord, make us one. Church, I pray God would bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, lift up his countenance, his face upon you, and give you his shalom, shalom, his perfect peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.